Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. We are delighted to welcome as our guest this week, prolific author and commentator David Frum, who has a new book out called Chumpocalypse. And before we turn to David's book, we just want to take note of a very uh, important series of Supreme Court decisions that have come down today. And uh, let's begin with you, David. What did you make of these rulings? Um the Roberts majority deftly upheld principles of law while giving President Trump what he needed most, which is he, they bought him time past the election of 2020 to keep his documents concealed. President Trump is not grateful for this. He's ranting and raving. Uh, but this really was the biggest victory he could have got. Um, and it's an example of um, a court acting in a way that is I think authentically constitutionally conservative, but also, I'm sorry to say, partisanly Republican. Um, They've protected Trump. Americans will vote in 2020 as they voted in 2016 with no idea of what the president owes and to whom does he owe it. So David, there is so much in your book that is trenchant and interesting, and I learned a lot from reading it. So thank you so much for writing Trumpocalypse. Uh, I want to talk about your use of this new term, fascioid. Um, You say that this president is not fascist. Um, Care to explain that? Well, we have got a global movement on our hands. Um, And the United States is just one example of it. It's present in other developed countries like like France, um, in in Germany. Um, And it's also present in, in the next tier of countries like Brazil and Mexico. These are movements that are contemptuous of democratic standards. Um, they're highly um, male-oriented very, you know, with a lot of ex- implicit or explicit misogyny. Um, they believe in the cult of the leader um, and they have very violent rhetoric. Uh, so we think we've seen that movie before. On the other hand, they're also different from what we've seen before. They actually don't use much violence uh, compared to the, um, uh, the movements of the 1930s. They, um, they may talk a big game, but they are not interested in military conflict with their neighbors, and they don't have the kind of real mass organization that we associate with the the fascism of the past. So I I suggest words like populist um, don't help us very much. No one quite knows what they mean. I want to pay... acknowledge the family similarity to the fascism of the 1930s while also stressing the differences. And so this is maybe a cumbersome thing, but I remembered in science that if you have a compound that's like an alkaline but isn't quite one, you call it an alkaloid. Or if you see something in the sky that's like a planet but isn't quite, you call it a planetoid. So I, I tried that same um, that same innovation here. <laughs> now, in, um, in, in this country, you could argue um, that part of the reason that it's fascioid and not fascist or fascist leaning is that Trump himself is so incompetent. It's that he doesn't have the attention span or the, or, or, or the ability really to be a tyrant, but is it, uh, but, but you're worried, aren't you, that, uh, that, that he has greased the skids for somebody who might not be as incompetent as he is. Yeah. Somebody with, with, with a work ethic and fewer psychic needs. Look, the, the story of the Trump, Trump's own, um, 
psychic problems have been a, a tremendous detriment to him. And he's also had the, um, the fact that he's just so gratuitously offensive that he's never been able to build anything like a majority, even when the economic times are good. But what I worry about, and this is a big theme of the book, is the hope that we so many had in, in 2016 and 17, that the institutions would check him. That really failed. Uh, I, and I go through the book, almost every important American institution, except the military, um, didn't do its job. And just now we were talking about the courts. This is another example where um, Trump uh, often lost cases in court, but when they really had to put a real constraint on them, they, they sort of flinched from it. Congress, of course, um, failed to act as an institution. It was just divided between the parties. Democrats came at Trump, Republicans defended him. And even the federal um, bureaucracy, which people thought would impose some regularity on him, some, some non-arbitrariness, it yielded to him again and again and again. Well, I don't know, David. I mean, we don't have the moat with alligators, and they didn't <laughs> actually shoot the immigrants who were coming across the border. So yeah. there were some checks. Yeah. Um, yes. All right. Now, talk. Uh, <laughs> um, if if you will, I'd like you to expand on this uh, the deep state point because I thought that was very interesting. Where you talked about the deep state lie and uh, the the nature of uh, of well, the, the way the Trumpians used that term. Uh, the deep state is a phrase that Steve Bannon put, picked up in his voracious magpie reading. And I'll, I'll make this story short. It comes from the uh, political science of authoritarian regimes in the third world, especially Turkey, but also Egypt and Pakistan, where the deep state refers to a, an underground, not an underground, but a a non-legal system of in the military and the security services that constrains the legal state, the elected politicians. So you vote for a prime minister to do one thing and the prime minister can't do it because the prime minister is vetoed by people whose power comes from God knows where. Well, when the law stops Donald Trump or when the military says this order is illegal, that's not the deep state stopping him. Um, that's the legal state acting. Let's a very concrete example. This is that led to the impeachment. Donald Trump had the power to reorient American foreign policy toward Russia if he wanted. Um, he could have uh, waived sanctions. He could have refused to sign new sanctions bills when they were passed. He could have made a case as to why he wanted a friendlier relationship with Russia. He could have appointed people, secretaries of state and defense, national security advisors who agreed with him. He could have invited Putin for a state visit or gone to Russia for a state visit of his own. He didn't do any of those things. What he, he Every piece of paper that he could sign, he signed continuous with the old policy. He he uh, signed the sanctions. He insisted that he would continue to enforce sanctions. Uh, he didn't appoint those kinds of people to the jobs at def defense and state. Instead, with a tiny little cabal inside the government, he thwarted the very policy that he himself had signed. He was the deep state. He was the invisible actor attacking legality. Mm, yes. And uh, and having his own private investigators uh, traipsing around places like Ukraine looking for dirt and so forth with the Giuliani, Giuliani's tricks and so on. Uh, he had private the, he could army done, there. He could have done all of that legally, but he chose not to. Exactly. Right, right, right. That's such a such a good point. All right. Now. Um, so, so we're coming to, we think we're coming to the end of the Trump years. What kinds of things are you looking at to guide us away from Trumpism? Well, I think we need some reforms that are political and some reforms that are social. 
um, because a lot of our polarization, a lot of the dysfunction of our political system comes from doubts that people have about the fairness and justice of their of their economic and social life. But politically, um, we need to take the Watergate reforms of the 1970s and bring them into the 21st century. Um, those reforms were written at a time when people, most people working in government were corporate executives or affluent professionals. They're just not ready to deal with the kind of secret plutocratic mega wealth that so many people who want to go into government have. Um, I mean, the Bloomberg presidency would have been even more convoluted than a Trump presidency. We need a, a new system of financial uh, regulation and a new system of, of, of disclosures. And I think we need to apply it to the families of presidents too. And my suggestion is, um, look, if, if you want to stay out of the public eye, if you're the son or daughter of a president and you don't want to be involved, fine. But once you accept secret service protection, then you have to disclose your tax returns because one way to bribe a president is through the president's family. And we have seen that. At a social level, I, I think we need to rebuild our feelings of commonality as a nation. And that means, in my view, thicker connections within the nation and a higher boundary between the nation and others. So I lay out in the book some new ideas for reinforcing the healthcare guarantee at the same time as we have immigration enforcement. And in my mind, these two really go together as symbolized by that moment uh, in the Miami Democratic debate earlier in 2020, when all the Democratic candidates were asked, put up your hand if you would extend healthcare coverage to illegal aliens, and everyone did. And we can talk about why. It's not, it, it's not as crazy a position as at first it sounds, but it, at first it sounds pretty crazy, and it attacks the bond of trust that people need if they're going to have confidence we're all in this together. All right. I know that uh, Linda Chavez would probably have a different view on this panel and uh, maybe uh, some others, but uh, you argue it very well. And I heartily recommend the book, Trumpocalypse, and, uh, though it's hard to say. And uh, thank you so much uh, for, for that. And uh, now we will move on. Uh, Bill Galston, why don't you get us started with what the court ruled about presidential immunity? Or lack thereof. Uh, lack thereof. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, I'm just going to focus on one case, and that is uh, the the case involving uh, the grand jury in you know, in the se second district of New York. Uh, the The president had made a series of claims. First of all, that he was entitled to absolute immunity from Know, from state prosecution while in office, uh, and uh, and secondly, that if the court didn't like that argument, at the very least, uh, there ought to be much stricter standards applied to requests from states, grand juries in states, uh, for uh, for information of the kind that they were requesting from him, uh, and. The court very firmly said no to both of those claims. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts began with a bang, uh, with a description of what he regards as the lead case, <laughs> namely the issues that arose in the trial of Aaron Burr, uh, <laughs> and demonstrated, I think, pretty conclusively that John Marshall rejected the principle of absolute immunity and that it has never existed in, in American law. You know, surprisingly, uh, uh, Roberts and with with the concurrence of four other justices, 
uh, also rejected stricter scrutiny uh, for information requests regarding the president. And so that leaves the president with no more cards to play. Uh, he'll have to he'll have to make his case uh, on standard grounds uh, to uh, to the uh, second to to the New York authorities that uh, there is no adequate reason for the grand jury's request to be granted. This is about as total a defeat as one can imagine. Uh, Damon, the uh, court said that, in fact, though there were two dissents, they really weren't dissenting on the principle involved. Right. I mean, I actually I disagree a little bit with Bill Galston on this and his reading of, of the, the Vance decision. Um, now, we'll see how this all plays out over the coming days and weeks. But as I read it, on principle, yes, the analysis that Bill just offered is exactly right. Uh, the claim to a kind of blanket immunity for presidents does not stand. But in this case, I believe they're just remanding uh, the, the case back to the district court. And they're actually early in the decision. Uh, Roberts kind of lays out some possible arguments that a president and perhaps this president could even use on other grounds to defend himself against having to cough up the information to a subpoena. So, I, I mean, it. I guess it's possible that this will all play out in about like three days or something. But I, I think that it, it at least, uh, uh, when it comes to kind of the political question of whether Trump will be forced finally to hand over his tax returns to some kind of an authority conducting investigation, I don't think that's entirely clear. So politically, I see this actually as more of a Trump victory if we define political as the next four months between now and when the election happens. And of course, there's also the fact that uh, if the, that material was released to a grand jury, it, it would be under wraps and not made public, at least uh, until much later in the process of a potential trial and so forth. Um, uh, on the other case, on the Mazars case, I think it kind of went in the other direction and maybe some of the other uh, panelists want to weigh in on that. I mean, I, I think that that case uh, actually more clearly is a victory for Trump. Just uh, maybe, again, not at the level of principle, but the arguments uh, that the House made, uh, uh, the arguments that were not made, I think, very well in oral arguments, uh, allowing of kind of very broad uh, ability of Congress and congressional committees to subpoena information from the president were really smacked down rather hard. And, uh, and even in the case of the Intelligence Committee, which I think was by far the most important investigation, they really gave no ground. They did basically just said, nope, go back, start the whole thing over, make new arguments, and maybe we'll see you long after November. Uh, Linda, the... Oh, David, did you want to jump in? No, this is this is Bill just oh, Bill. wanting to reply very, very briefly. Uh, I actually don't think Damon and I are disagreeing at all. Uh, okay. And from, from a legal standpoint, uh, the, the court in the case that I discussed resolved every issue uh, before it against the president. The question of whether the president would be immediately compelled to hand over the requested information was not before the court. 
Uh, and it was never the court's prerogative uh, to say that the uh, that the president's request should be turned should be turned down. Uh, the the litigation had to do with issues anterior to the substantive question of whether uh, of, of of whether the requested document should be turned over. So we're right back now to where we were when the documents were originally requested. Except now the president has to make an argument on the merits as to whether or not they should be turned over. Glad to hear we don't really agree. I don't really disagree. But I thought I begged to differ, but uh, yeah. in fact, I do well, not. Oh, well, we'll keep striving for it on this podcast. Yes. Um, so, Linda, people who were thinking that this Supreme Court, these two Supreme Court decisions would result in the immediate revelation of Trump's uh, tax returns are going to be disappointed uh, they, as, as uh, I think Damon pointed out, I mean, even in the case of uh, of the criminal investigation, those are those are uh, grand jury matters which uh, are under wraps, and unless they found evidence in there of a crime, which was then prosecuted, that would never never be released to the public. And with regard to the uh, congressional subpoena, um, it's. Uh, it, it, it could take a, a very, very long time for this matter first to be resolved in the courts and then to arise again. And of course, by then we would uh, be in a new term for possibly a new president, likely a new president. Um, so, but, but the principle at stake, just as in Clinton v. Jones, I think is a very important one to have underlined, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a victory for the rule of law. And I think those people who somehow thought that, oh, gee, you know, tomorrow morning's uh, New York Times and Washington Post were going to have a full transcript of the president's tax filings were simply naive and don't understand our legal system, and, nor do they respect it very much, because that was never the intent. Um, I think another positive thing to come out of this, in addition to validating the rule of law and that applies to all men, including President of the United States, is that you had two Trump appointees um, who basically voted against the president. Uh, and I think that uh, is uh, an important, um, important matter. I think that those who have been worried that this court has become so political that uh, the issues are in fact decided on a partisan basis rather than on the merits um, are, uh, are, are wrong. And so I, you know, I viewed this as a good day. Would it have been, you know, wonderful if, you know, you could have seen the president's tax returns right away? Well, Yes and no. I mean, as a matter of law, I don't think it would have been wonderful. Um, and as a matter of, of uh, politics, I think that is what elections are about. And I think voters have the right to say this time around, we don't want to have a president who is so wary of the things he's done in his life that he doesn't even allow his uh, tax returns to be seen as all other candidates have uh, in the modern era. Uh, that's, you know, that's how it's going to be. All right. Welcome back. Um, this has been quite an era. I mean, we're, we're, sort of, we're going to step back from the immediate news of the day, although as usual, it's coming at us with a fire hose. But uh, I wanted to take some time to discuss what's happening in the 
um, in the culture uh, with the uh, cancel culture wars uh, on, on the right and the left, and specifically on the left. We spend a lot of time on this podcast criticizing the right, and for very good reasons. Uh, but I think it's also important to um, drop in and talk about what's happening um, in terms of, uh, of the, um, sorry, I'm just going to start that over. I think it's important to talk about the intolerance that we are seeing uh, also on the left. So this week there was a statement uh, that was published in Harper's about the free exchange of information and ideas, which they called the lifeblood of a liberal society. Uh, And they said a lot of very nice things like we uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter speech from all quarters. And it's all too common now to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought, so on. Now, this may all sound pretty normal to some of us, but uh, not, oh, by the way, among the signers were Gloria Steinem, Malcolm Gladwell, Barry Weiss, um, Matt Iglesias, Deirdre McCloskey, and of course, uh, our own Damon Linker and our guest this week, David Frum. Now, these sentiments would have been considered absolutely uncontroversial a very short time ago, but now it is something that has caused a raging controversy. A number, a couple of the signers of this statement have since, uh, of, of which there were about, I think, 150. Um, but uh, some of the signers have now retracted their signatures um, because they didn't. They found out later that, oh my goodness, some people were on the list that they didn't like, um, and so, which is not exactly the point of an open letter. It's not to say you endorse everything that everybody else who's signing the statement may have said or done in their career, but rather that you agree with the statement itself. In any event, uh, some of these were um, Jennifer... Finley Boylan, who uh, said that she she thought she was endorsing a well-meaning, if vague message, but uh, now she's she's withdrawing. Carrie Greenridge, a historian, similarly, and a Vox writer, Emily Vanderweff, a trans woman, said that because the letter was signed by prominent anti-trans voices. And I didn't understand this part. She said it was it contained many dog whistles toward anti-trans positions. Uh, so she's also very upset with her colleague at Vox, namely Matt Iglesias, uh, who signed. So this is part of a much larger problem in our society. And I can give chapter and verse. I've got five pages here of examples. Um, so... Um, so Damon, uh, are, are we in the midst of a kind of, you know, Maoist moment, if you will, in American life where, um, the simple statement, like we endorse free and robust exchange of ideas is, uh, is no longer endorsed by people of goodwill. Well, it, it's clearly a battle, uh, and the point of the statement, I think, was twofold. I mean, on the one hand, it was a simple statement of principle that, 
look, no one is talking about absolute freedom of speech or endorsement in the public square for ideas. I'm sure everyone on this podcast thinks that David Duke should be canceled and remain canceled and people even further right kind of pro Hitlerian types and people who would defend, you know, child abuse and so forth. I mean, it's good and healthy that there are lines. The question is how broad or how narrow they should be. And what we're seeing is a real battle right now between people who would like the lines to be pretty broad, the pretty much, uh, you know, from pretty far right to pretty far left and everything in between that we fight it out in the public square versus I think a lot of people who tend to be a little bit younger who are further to the left, more committed to kind of social justice causes, believe much more in constricting that that spectrum so that if you don't espouse certain specific views on the left, that you uh, sort of become anathematized, kind of drummed out of civilized company, perhaps even get fired, don't get your op-eds published and so forth. And so on the one hand, the statement simply wanted to kind of make a statement about what is happening and to clearly say all of these people from kind of mildly center right, people like uh, like David Frum or Ann Applebaum, all the way over to Noam Chomsky on the far left can affirm that basic principle despite all our differences. But the second thing, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it was a kind of guerrilla operation, like here, look, all of these prominent people are saying this. How do you react to this? This is a, this is the most anodyne statement in favor of an open society. Can you affirm that? And then to watch the reaction among the people who we think, uh, are, are dissenting from it. And it has worked beautifully for that. There has been day after day this week of very angry, vituperative attacks on the very idea of such a statement. And it's very useful, I think, for people who maybe were, you know, unsure about whether they would sign such a, such a principled uh, statement to see that, oh, wow, there really are a lot of people around in our workplaces and, and in the public square writing who simply do not believe that we should have a broad spectrum of debate, that actually it should be narrowed and are willing to defend that and all of the kind of implications for rational argument that it implies. Linda, what what happens to a society that does not allow for free and open debate? Um, let me give you one that really uh, touched me. They all touched me, but here's the, you know, the communications director of Boeing, uh, was forced to resign because of a piece he wrote 33 years ago opposing women in combat. He's a veteran himself. And not only did he step down from his post, but he said he issued one of these cringing and just, just skin-crawling apologies. He said, my argument was embarrassingly wrong and offensive. The article is not a reflection of who I am, but nonetheless, I've decided that in the interest of the company, I will step down. Now, I don't know about you, Linda, but I <laughs> made arguments against women in combat. I still believe that that's the right position. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but does that mean I should lose my job? 
Well, uh, having lost a job because I, in fact, did a commentary for National Public Radio questioning the wisdom of women in combat, uh, was soon after uh, dismissed as an NPR commentator. And they weren't even brave enough to tell me the real reason, although I later learned from a friend inside that there had been a kind of backlash among many of the women on staff. They didn't like me anyway. And this was sort of, you know, uh, a step too far. So, um, but the reason they gave is that NPR had a plethora of commentators on the right. They didn't need me and my <laughs> yeah. voice. So, yeah, right. Uh, and now, this was a number of years ago, by the way. So, yeah. uh, so you know, look, I am very worried about this. And you ask what happens to a society in which you cannot have reasoned debate about these kinds of issues. What happens is you become a totalitarian society. And whoever is in power is the one that sets the rules about um, what is acceptable. And apparently, most of the controversy about this letter uh, has come from the trans community, and it had to do with J.K. Rowling, who dis- uh, described sort of trans culture as an attempt to brainwash uh, young gay people into thinking that they were, you know, other sex trapped in, in the wrong body. Look, I think that when you have big social movements, whether it's gay marriage, which I was at one time opposed to and now have come to accept, or women in combat, uh, combat which I you know, had a long record of, of being critical of and am now um, somewhat less critical because of the nature of combat having been changed, to the question of the whole trans movement, which I am still dubious about, we have to be able to debate these issues. Now, the way in which we debate them can eliminate us uh, from the debate if we do so in an ugly and callous uh, way that is not reason, that is not trying to marshal evidence or arguments that are uh, proper arguments, if we just engage in name calling and stereotyping. Okay, then you can, you know, then you can um, cancel us. But if we are going to have real debates, we have to have intellectual openness and we have to be willing to listen to people who disagree with us. And we have to be able to persuade those who disagree with us uh, that it, you know, that they're wrong. And the only way you do that is by open debate. Bill Galston, uh, a professor at UCLA was investigated and suspended, I believe, um, because he read from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, um, an American classic, one might think, uh, but that was enough for him to be investigated. Uh, why? Because the speech, because the letter contains the N-word. Uh, is th- there is a level of hysteria and and kind of um, mob mob action here that is a little frightening, don't you think? Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, there on in this segment, there's no begging and no differing, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, uh, look, I, I think. I think we're all in in more more or less the same place, and so it might be useful. I guess my 
my contribution will be to pull out for inspection one of the most frequently repeated uh, arguments uh, by those who, you know, who want to move in the direction of curtailing speech. And that is that speech X, uh, which I want to curtail, makes me feel unsafe. Okay, let's, let's just think about that for a minute. Uh, I think people, to the extent that society can manage it, have a right to be safe against, uh, against violence and threats directed in their direction. They do not have a right to feel safe if they define their zone of safety is as never hearing an argument with which they disagree. But that argument is being made seriously. Some staffers on the New York Times said that the publication of Tom Cotton's piece made them feel unsafe. Uh, I think we'd be in better shape if that argument were, uh, were unmasked for what it is. Uh, I remember a controversy at Yale University a few years ago, uh, and the right response from the university uh, is that the, no university should be a zone of safety if what you mean by that is a zone of immunity from ideas that make you uncomfortable. You can't run a university that way. Uh, and you can run a country that way, but the results aren't pretty. Uh, David, one of the things that left the people on the left frequently argue, and I uh, arguably this, um, this notion of uh, feeling unsafe because of ideas one disagrees with is, is an extension of it. They frequently argue that conservative ideas are actually dangerous. Um, and, uh, and I'd like your response to this. I and mean, there, there are a couple of things to say about that, uh, in, in my judgment. One is that, you know, uh, everything can be defined as dangerous, right? I mean, y- you want to expand Medicaid through the States and I don't, let's say, I'm, I'm just as an example, I'm not saying that's my real position, but, um, you know, you can, you can say, well, that's going to cost lives because people aren't going to get medical care and people will die. You could argue that. Um, There are so many positions. I mean, you know, defund the police, you say. I say, well, that will cause people to die. That makes me feel unsafe. I mean, it's never a legitimate argument. I mean, it's things are, there are always stakes to every argument. And the idea that your preferred policies are dangerous and mine are not is, I think, um, is, I think, kind of empty. And the, the other problem with it is they say white silence is violence, or racism is violence, uh, but then they say, "But looting and and uh, rioting—that's not violence." No, um, look, I, I, as a signatory of this letter, have been struck by exactly the thing that Damon pointed out, which is its real impact is uh, not the object that was placed on the table, but the rise of dust from the table after the object was placed. The object itself, only moderately interesting. The rise of dust, extremely interesting. And we are learning a lot about what Ross Douthat has called the successor ideology, the post-liberal ideology of America. What do people believe? And this is very much um, a work in progress, so it doesn't necessarily cohere or make sense. It's often 
quite unpredictable what people think. But um, we're now going to have some interesting choices to make uh, because uh, a, a lot of this successor ideology um, rests on claims that don't just, they're not just that they're controversial. They come out of an entirely different structure of knowledge. I mean, if science is a cultural construct rather than a series of true statements about the universe, we're on our way to a very different kind of civilization. A society that believes that science is, is, is a collection of true statements about the universe is going to look very different from a society that thinks, you know, uh, you can have your own opinion on the speed of light or your, your own opinion on what happens um, uh, when you when two molecules meet. That, that's, that, that you know, there'll be one, one answer to that is true in Europe and a different answer is true in Africa. So I, I think we are going, we're going to join a, a discussion that is very powerful and that until now, one of the things that has been that is also good about the state. Until now, the most important people on the successor ideology side are the HR departments inside corporations, which are really there to squash disgruntled employee litigation, and they've they've borrowed a lot of jargon from the academy as a way to squash disgruntled employee litigation. We need to have better representatives of the successor ideology than the HR departments. Um, it, this, come on, state what you think. Tell us that you don't think science is a, um, is a collection of true statements about the universe. Say that it's something else, and let's let's make people aware of what it is that you want to argue. <clears throat> Damon, uh, as you know, and as listeners to this podcast know, I almost never have a kind word to say about our president. Um, but on the subject of um, his, and I wrote a very critical column about his Mount Rushmore speech, which I thought was disgraceful. Nevertheless, uh, he pointed out one or two things that I think are true, namely about cancel culture and about the fact that one gets the sense among some people on the left um, that there is they really don't think that there's anything at all to celebrate about American history. And they they want us to don sackcloth and ashes about America's many sins and, um, you know, where does that leave people like us who believe that the the American experiment is on balance a very good thing and that we should also be aware of our many faults and strive to correct them? Well, I think I think it's distressing how that for me, the the thing that I object to most passionately in in those kinds of attacks, but let's use the 1619 project as an example. And by the way, it was announced this week that uh, Oprah Winfrey is getting together with Lionsgate uh, Pictures, a movie production company to kind of do a series of TV shows and movies based on the 1619 project. I assume these are going to be kind of documentaries. Uh, so this isn't going away. This is getting bigger. Uh, and the 1619 Project is not wrong in many of its specific claims. It's wrong about some of them, and there's been a lot of debate among historians about it. But the real objection, in my view, is not that it seeks to highlight the role of slavery in American history and its its very bad legacy for for Black Americans. The the much worse thing is the attempt to say that this is the core. This is what America is, and everything else must be warped 
to placing slavery and its aftermath and legacy at the center of it all. And so I think the best thing for people who want to defend a liberal society as opposed to this outlook is to is to defend pluralism and to say, yes, maybe we haven't even spent anywhere near enough time focusing on some of these these facts, the stories, the details about the black experience. Let's incorporate that into the story, but it isn't the story. And the the truth is that actually American experiences, the American experience in history is unbelievably complex, complicated. It has lots of good. It has uh, quite a bit of bad mixed in there. Individuals have mixtures of good and bad things about them. You know, I mean, that's that's what's behind a lot of the controversy, I think, over the the. Um, vandalism of monuments and statues is that like, you know, hardly anyone is really saying, you know, we really need to keep up that statue of uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, the the great bloodthirsty Confederate general who went on and was a co-founder of the Ku Klux Klan. No one's, very few people are rising in the defense of that. But when it comes to like other people who, you know, okay, George Washington owned slaves, that's bad. But what about all the other stuff? Is Are we all reduced to our worst traits as judged 200 to 250 years in the future? That That is is, is something that is, is both very corrosive, it can't work out well politically, and, it, and it's just kind of intellectually false to the complicated reality of, of the human experience and the human condition, in my view. Yes. Um... David, uh, I heard somebody caricature um, the teaching of American history in our schools as slavery, Jim Crow, and the internment of the Japanese Americans. Um, you know, there, there is an argument for teaching American history virtues and all, right? Yeah, but, but we, are, we always go through these cultural shifts. Um, we're on the verge now, this December will be the 400th anniversary of the landing at Plymouth Rock in 1620. Um, it's hard to convey now, I, I was doing some work on this today for a related matter, what an enormous deal the 300th anniversary of the landing was in 1920. Um, a the state of Massachusetts paid for a brand new McKinmead and White portico over the rock. Um, it, the uh, Calvin Coolidge, the former governor of Massachusetts, then who was then the vice president, that came and speak. Huge crowd, big ceremonies. Um, no way is that going to happen on the 400th anniversary, and that reflects many changes in American culture. Um, and that's part of what is going on. What what is going on here? Those things do ebb and flow. Um, we are watching the. Uh, the cancellation of Christopher Columbus in 2020. Uh, but it was only in 1890 that we invented Christopher Columbus in the first place. And we did that not because of Christopher Columbus, but, but to say to Catholics, you're honored citizens in the United States and, you know, right. uh, anti-Catholic prejudice in the United States has run very, very deep. Um, we're going to find a Catholic hero to join the Protestants in the Pantheon. Um, and how about Christopher Columbus? Um, even if he was maybe partly Jewish. Um, so these things, <laughs> uh, these, these things do ebb and flow, um, but uh, and they ebb and flow politically. The question is, how do you get it done? I mean, that that um, are you going to do this through systems of coercion um, and through uh, uh, silencing people who uh, notice what's happening and and have an objection to raise and uh, and who want to say, let's before before we decide that Plymouth Rock is not important. 
um, let's let's talk about why not? Or do you do it just through sheer weight of political power as enforced by HR departments? Yeah. Um, look, the um, as a number of people on this podcast have said, you know, human beings are complicated and flawed, and that is certainly true of, of nations as well. And I, I've never had much patience for people who want to present America in a perfectly pristine way without any of the savagery and uh, and sins that are certainly part of our past. And it does a disservice to the descendants of African-Americans who suffered for so long um, to not be quick to acknowledge that all the time. And it has, it has effects on the society that we've inherited without any question. Um, but the, uh, the, the wholesale, uh, the, the, the imposition of kind of Maoist struggle sessions where people are forced to withdraw the most anodyne statements, uh, where you cannot cite the work in the case of David Shore, poor 28 year old kid working for a democratic, uh, uh, analytics, uh, organization where he, he merely quoted the work of an African-American scholar saying that, uh, nonviolent demonstrations turned out to be more politically productive than violent ones in the 1960s. And for that, he was fired. This is kind of a madness that, that has to be nipped in the bud if it can be. Um, all right, let us now go to our final segment, which is something that we want to draw attention to Bill Galston. Well, I'd like to draw attention to two things, if I can exceed my quota. Uh, Thing number one, uh, continuing a trend of now a couple of weeks old, uh, the new director of our international broadcasting system reportedly will not renew the visas of the foreign journalists working for the various parts of his organization when those visas expire. Uh, these journalists, many of, many of whom have done brave and exemplary work you know, as part of our international broadcasting uh, system, will now be subject to the tender mercies of their respective governments, many of whom are not amused <laughs> by uh, the broadcasts that these journalists have have delivered or have helped to construct. Uh, I find this deeply troubling, and I think that there should be a robust public debate about the new management of the broadcasting system. Uh, Second new thing, within the past hour, uh, the esteemed Pew Research Center has come out with a detailed survey on American attitudes towards policing and police reform. Uh, and has confirmed many of the suggestions from previous research, uh, and that is that solid majorities of Americans think that there's a big problem here, and it needs some major changes in law as well as practice for remedy. I'll give you just one example. 66% of Americans believe and affirm that civilians need to have the power to sue police officers in order to hold them accountable for excessive use of force or misconduct. In other words, two-thirds of the country rejects the principle of qualified immunity, which has dominated the legal field for decades. So this is 
These are big deal changes in public attitudes, and I'm convinced that sooner or later they're going to lead to large legal changes. Thank you. Linda? Well, um, I want to pick up uh, a little bit, uh, I guess, on the theme that Bill has sounded. Uh, It's not just uh, Voice of America that's going to be uh, denying uh, the visas of people who work there. The Trump administration this week has announced that it will bar international college students from staying in the U.S. if their school's coursework is now entirely online and they can't transfer to another uh, institution that has it uh, in person. And this is really uh, a terrible thing. I mean, it's a terrible thing, not just for the students, but more importantly, from my point of view, it's a terrible thing for America. Uh, In uh, 2015, which I think is one of the last years that we have good statistics available, 42% of STEM graduate students at universities in the United States were international students. And uh, the decline in international students since the Trump administration has been in office has been significant, and that is going to harm the United States. Uh, It's also going to harm the universities at which uh, these students study. And it's simply um, one more way of this uh, administration's, what I consider really a war on immigrants. Now, David Frum and I might not agree totally on how to fix immigration policy in the United States, but I can't imagine that anybody thinks it's a good idea for a graduate student studying at Yale or Harvard or Princeton or someplace else uh, who cannot take uh, his or her courses uh, in person entirely uh, should be kicked out of the country and uh, that education and the money that the, uh, that Americans have invested in that education go to waste. Um, And by the way, it's an open secret that uh, many of these foreign students pay full freight at universities, which frees up funds to give scholarships and grants and loans to American students. Absolutely. Um, Okay, Damon. Uh, Yeah, I'll start just by saying I totally agree with uh, with Linda's point there. I mean, I'm teaching uh, at Penn in the fall and uh, this has been uh, like a grenade going off uh, this week in at the university and I'm sure at all universities in the midst of them trying desperately to figure out how they're going to open in a month or so safely. They now are faced with this mess of having their undergraduate and graduate students potentially locked out. So uh, really just cruel and, and I think pretty stupid thing that the Trump administration is doing here. Um, my uh, uh, suggestion for reading is very much something that I beg to differ on, and I'm sure everyone else in the podcast does as well, but I do believe in a broad spectrum of debate uh, to keep with that theme. And so I recommend that uh, listeners uh, take a read from uh, Peter Beinart's very provocative essay in the New York Times, I No Longer Believe in a Jewish state, which is itself a a shortened version of a much longer piece that he published in uh, the very left-wing Jewish Currents, where he serves as editor-at-large. Beinart famously uh, was the editor of The New Republic back when this formerly center-left magazine, now left, uh, was very pro-Iraq war. Uh, He was very much a passionate Zionist and has been kind of moving away from that on on terms of liberalism, as he understands it, that's kind of been his 
his argument for about uh, 10 years or so now, and it's culminated in him affirming liberalism and jettisoning the the Zionism. So uh, on all of those themes, uh, worth reading, wrestling with, and uh, perhaps disagreeing with strenuously, but worth reading. I think we can handle that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's likely. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, David Frum. Um, A quick point is to follow up on what something that Linda said about the the pressure on university students. Um, The truly sinister thing about what the Trump administration there is doing is they don't care one way or another about the international students. What they're trying to do is bring, Mona, as you said, financial pressure, because these students do often pay full freight, to bear on universities to force a reopening over the uh, on Trump terms over the objections of faculty and often of students. That they are this they are you deploying economic power to make universities do things that universities think is unsafe, and that's that's really unsettling. Um, my, uh, I would point out to uh, this event this week, July first, uh, the U.S. MCA ca- uh, agreement went into effect, the replacement for NAFTA. This was the this is Trump's much ballyhooed um, trade deal uh, to replace NAFTA. Um, really, one of the very few substantive domestic accomplishments of his presidency. And I think, speaking to you from north of the border, it's worth note- mentioning just what a gigantic nothing burger U.S. MCA or U. Smacka, as I like to call it, <laughs> has been. Um, the international. <laughs> Uh, That's great. We'll, we'll yeah, steal that one. <laughs> uh, Go on. Uh, okay. The USMCA is a trade narrowing agreement. It, 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 it opens the way to uh, internal protectionism in North America on car parts and clothes um, and textiles. Uh, those who have studied it, including the uh, International Monetary Fund, find that it has to the, uh, it actually is likely to reduce trade on net. It seems to have a, a slight downward pressure on um, GDP in all three countries. And ironically, it is going to have the most negative impact on the well-being of Americans because it will tend to raise the prices of goods inside the United States. Um, NAFTA, which was negotiated in the 1980s and went into effect in the middle 1990s, was absolutely due for an update. For one thing, it didn't have anything to say about services like um internet shopping or information service streaming. How could it? So those things needed to be updated and there were new changes needed to be brought into making sure that we have a functioning North American labor market so that people who can move legally in in an appropriate way. Trump didn't solve any important problem. He solved a bunch of unimportant problems and he created a trade deal that actually makes for less trade in North America than we would have if we just kept NAFTA. Oh, can I, yes, bravo. Can I can I just um, amend a couple other little tiny data points? Um, saw some uh, research that um, during the Trump administration, you remember that during the 2016 campaign, he, he was constantly touting that we needed to bring down our trade deficits. This was a huge problem. Of course, most economists don't think that trade deficits are important at all. And uh, guess what? Trade deficits increased during the Trump years, and um, manufacturing employment did not increase. So, uh, just throw throw that in too um, to underline your point. Um, I want to just draw attention to um, a piece that appeared uh, on the website of the Foundation for Economic Education. It's about the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot of misinformation that's floating around out there about. What is the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, there's a huge distinction between what most Americans imagine the movement is, hashtag Black Lives Matter, namely an expression of concern about excessive police force 
used against uh, against African Americans. I think that's what most people mean when they say they endorse Black Lives Matter. Uh, but the actual organization, uh, Black Lives Matter trademark, um, was founded by a bunch of Marxists who have pretty radical ideas. And some of them are, for example, to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure um, and create the conditions for black liberation through the abolition of systems and institutions of white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism. So clearly uh, there is a Black Lives Matter official uh, organization that has some very radical views and people should be aware when they express solidarity with Black Lives Matter that they mean with the larger principle, not with the particular organization uh, that doesn't represent, I think, most people's views. All right. Thank you, one and all. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we will be back next week. (laughs) 